You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. One of the many things I encountered online this week uh, was a pieced together video of a bunch of celebrities singing John Lennon's Imagine. Uh, Maybe you saw it. Now, think about this. During a time when people are frightened and anxious and unsure of what lies ahead, the song that goes viral offers people this hope. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Imagine no possessions, I wonder if you can, no need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. Here was John Stone Street's response. John is the president of the Colson Center, and I think he rather accurately pointed out the problem with this. Here's what he said. So, you're telling me that to imagine this world is all there is, people have no source of intrinsic value, and history is headed nowhere should make me feel better about a pandemic? Friends, everyone on the planet is looking for a reason to hope. They are desperately searching for someone or something to put their hope in. And never do we see this more clearly than during a time of difficulty and suffering, much like what we're experiencing now. Now, even for believers, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus for forgiveness of their sin and eternal peace with God, even followers of Christ face times and seasons of uncertainty and doubt. Again, this often happens when we face suffering and difficulty, doesn't it? Consider this, brothers and sisters, the the story of the early church, the story that the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to record for our benefit and instruction. This story is the true account of regular people, saved by grace, who endeavored to walk with Jesus in the face of great hostility and during a time of tremendous difficulty. Now, the difficulty that we are presently facing is far different than what the early church encountered. But even so, there is much encouragement for us to remain faithful and hopeful during this coronavirus trial. Let me quickly catch you up and remind you of where we are in our study. Paul has been traveling to and visiting Gentile congregations. He's been preaching Christ, encouraging believers, and collecting an offering to take back to struggling believers in Jerusalem. But when he arrives in Jerusalem, he almost immediately faces severe opposition. You've heard about this as we've studied through chapters 21 22, 23, and 24. Here's the way Luke records this for us. It all centers around a number of speeches Paul has given in various settings. First, he addressed the crowd in Jerusalem in chapter 22, verses 1 through 21. 
Then he addressed the Jewish council in Jerusalem in chapter 23, verses 1 through 6. Then he addressed the Roman governor Felix in Caesarea in chapter 24, verses 1 through 21. In chapter 25, then, Paul briefly addresses another official named Festus. All of this leading up to Paul's public speech before King Agrippa in chapter 26. So here's what I want to do this morning. I I simply want to read through chapter 25 as it continues telling Paul's story and it sets up the events of chapter 26. And then I want to share just one brief observation with you from the first 11 verses of chapter 26. So now, make sure your Bible is open, and I want you to follow along as I read all the way through Acts chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. As they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. 
Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. It's fascinating, isn't it, to hear what a difficult time these government leaders are having trying to figure out what exactly Paul has done that is so terrible. Now we arrive at chapter 26. This is not only the grand finale of Paul's defense speeches, but it is the last major message we will hear from the lips of Paul in the book of Acts. It's important to realize that what takes place in chapter 26 is not a legal trial. Rather, it's a hearing to advise Festus. But of course, for Paul, this is simply another opportunity to declare the good news of Jesus Christ and to do so with boldness and without apology. So let's pick up the story again in chapter 26 and verse 1. Look at the text with me. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now, friends, listen to the theme. Listen carefully. Listen to the theme that emerges as Paul begins to make his defense. Look at verse 4. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? 
What dominant idea or theme jumps out of those five verses? What's the theme of hope? We find it most prominently in verses 6 and 7, but Paul is not talking about the idea of hope in, in some generic sense. No, it is tethered to the person and work of Jesus Christ, specifically as we see in verse 8, the hope of a future resurrection that is only found in and through Christ. If you remember, the Pharisees and the Sadducees disagreed about this. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead and the Sadducees denied it. But friends, let's not miss this. Paul is not primarily interested in shedding light on a theological debate that was raging within the Sanhedrin. He was primarily concerned with making the gospel clear. And at the very heart of the gospel is what? It's hope. This is why Peter encourages believers to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. In fact, this is essentially what Paul is doing here, isn't it? Listen again to verses 6 and 7. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. All Paul is saying here is this. I believe that God has fulfilled the promises and prophecies made throughout the Old Testament scriptures, and I believe they have been fulfilled in Jesus. Specifically, Paul has in mind the promise that all who are in Christ will be resurrected from the dead and will ultimately be gathered together in the presence of God. You see, friends, as Paul states in verse 7, This is the hope that drove many Jews to earnestly obey the law. This is what motivated their tireless worship. His point is that this isn't something that he has invented. It's not a creation of his own imagination. This is the true hope of Israel. And it's found entirely in the person and work of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. In short, Paul's hope was in Jesus alone. And this is the message that he wants to share with everyone who will listen. Place your hope in Jesus. Now keep that in mind as we move into verses 9 through 11. Listen to what Paul declares. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So what's Paul's point here? Well, he's admitting that he used to think like those who oppose him now think. 
At one time, he hated Christians just as much as certain Jews now hated him. Consider again verse 9. He opposed, what a strong statement. He opposed the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 10, he not only locked up saints, but he voted for their execution. Verse 11, he persecuted followers of Jesus severely, hoping they would recant their faith and openly reject Jesus. Now, brothers and sisters, why did Paul live this way? Think about his audience and think about the argument he's been making. His passionate persecution of Christians and his violent opposition to the spread of the gospel, well, it was fueled by his religious convictions. He believed that he was pleasing God. He believed that he was earning God's favor. In other words, Paul, as Saul, the religious zealot, he was placing his hope in his own religious performance. As Paul is speaking before King Agrippa, and as he explains what he believed before his Damascus Road experience and what he now believes after, we find a contrast in hope. And this reminds us, doesn't it, that everyone is searching for hope. As we see in Paul's own example, there are only two options for those searching for hope. You will either find it in yourself or you will find it in something or someone outside of yourself. Everyone knows that something in the world is broken. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. So everyone is searching. They are desperately looking for a reason for hope. How can I make sense of everything? What's the answer to the problem? And again, there are really only two options. You will place your hope in something or someone in this created world which really means that you have the answers you need. Or you will realize that true and lasting hope cannot be found in yourself or anything you can accomplish or your, or your own abilities. It's nothing you can lay hold of. But in coming to this realization, friends, you will be ready to hear about the one who did something for you. You will be ready to hear of the uncreated one who voluntarily entered into the brokenness of this world and through his death and resurrection, he now offers hope to everyone. This is what Paul experienced. A fundamental transformation of his source and object of hope. It was revealed by grace that what he was so desperately searching for, well, he could only find it in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, like those celebrities who cooperated to sing an anthem 
of utter hopelessness. We are surrounded right now by people who see with tremendous clarity that the world is broken. And so they're looking, they're searching, they're grasping for hope. What a great opportunity for us. We can show them Jesus. We can testify to the hope that we have, just like Paul does in our text, to point anyone who will listen to the hope that is only found in Jesus. There's a wonderful old hymn that's been rattling around in my head all week. Most of you will know it and know it well. Some call it, My Hope is Built. Others call it, On Christ the Solid Rock. But I want you to hear the second and third stanzas of the chorus. And I'm sharing this both as a means of encouraging you and as a means of pushing you to share this glorious truth with those who are desperately searching for hope. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood when all around my soul gives way. He then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that you would, by your Spirit, in this moment, fill our hearts with hope. The hope of Christ, crucified and raised from the dead, there is no greater hope than this. I pray during this time of uncertainty that that this hope would be displayed in our lives to our families, to our neighbors, to our co-workers. As they grasp for some way to make sense of what's happening, as the sense of hopelessness rests on those who do not know Christ, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give your people opportunities to declare the hope of Christ. Fill our hearts afresh with this hope and put it on our lips. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. As we all continue to walk through this very unusual time, I've found it fascinating and, and not at all surprising that everywhere I turn, I'm encountering stories and conversations about hope. In fact, just yesterday, a news story posted on Facebook caught my attention. It was posted by the local television channel Care 11, and it was the following three words that that jumped off the screen. Here they were, neighborhood hope dealer. Uh, This particular story was about a reporter named Adrian Broadus, who who put out a call on social media for people to submit videos or to post on their wall a three-word story. And it was in response to this question. How will we use our words in the coming days and weeks to deliver hope? How will we use our words in the coming days and weeks to deliver hope? Here were just some of the responses. Hang in there. Music is key. Just be kind. You are special. Enjoy family time. And my personal favorite, eat ice cream. Friends, there's a good reminder for us in this news story. As believers in the Lord Jesus, we we have now been commissioned by him to be his witnesses. So we do absolutely believe that words are used to communicate hope. The gospel message is good news. It's an announcement. It's something to be spoken and declared. This is what we've seen and been reminded of all throughout the book of Acts. And it's what we'll be reminded of again this morning. Last week, we began looking at Paul's speech to King Agrippa and how the obvious theme he established immediately was this theme of hope. So last week, our time was focused on the search for hope. This week, we'll talk about finding hope. I want you to see three truths about real and lasting hope, or to put it more succinctly, let's call it gospel hope hope. And all three of these truths are laid out clearly in Paul's speech before King Agrippa. Here's truth number one. Gospel hope is given by God. Gospel hope is given by God. Hopefully you have your Bible opened or you have it up on some device. Look at the text with me beginning in verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus, Paul is speaking, with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Remember why Paul was traveling to Damascus in the first place. 
He had been given permission by the religious authorities to seek out true believers in Jesus and persecute them. As he said back in verse 9, his aim was to oppose the name of Jesus. And then in verse 11, the NIV actually translates Paul's words this way. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Friends, here's what I want you to see. Paul wasn't someone who was carefully considering the claims of Christ and weighing the pros and cons of embracing the gospel. He wasn't traveling to Damascus in hopes of finding answers to his deepest spiritual questions. He wasn't looking for Jesus. No, he was an enemy of Jesus. But what happened? As Paul was living under the delusion that he could please God by keeping the law and persecuting those who he perceived were dangerous by an act of sheer grace and without Paul's permission, God interrupted his life. We could say that it was on the Damascus road that Paul found hope. But friends, it would be far more accurate, wouldn't it, to say that on the Damascus road, hope found Paul. This was entirely the work of God. And in fact, look back at verse 14 again. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. As Paul is sharing with King Agrippa the true story of his radical conversion, he recounts hearing the voice of Jesus, and Jesus said this, It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, what does this mean? Well, a a goad was a sharp-pointed stick that was used to move animals in a particular direction. So if you owned a, a farm with large animals on it, you would use a goad to prod the animals, trying to move them where you actually wanted them to go. You can picture this, can't you? But what does Jesus say as Paul lays crumpled in a heap on the ground? Well, he talks about the difficulty of kicking against the goads. Imagine an animal being prodded with a sharp instrument, and at the very same time, the the animal kicks back into it. This would be a pointless and painful act. Brothers and sisters, when God knocked Paul down on the Damascus road, Paul was being sovereignly redirected. And it would have been painful and pointless for Paul to do anything other than submit to the prodding of Almighty God. The true and lasting hope that Paul was now boldly declaring before King Agrippa was not something he discovered on his own, but it was given to him 
by a merciful and loving God. I want you to see something more. Not only was Paul's ultimate hope given by God, but his hope was entirely based on what Christ had done for him, not what he could do for himself. Paul's hope was given by God, and it was focused on Jesus. That's our second point. Gospel hope is focused on Jesus. We see this in verses 15 through 18. Look at the text again. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now again, there's, there's a lot here that we don't have time to cover this morning. But let me summarize what's transpiring in verses 15 through 18. Paul is recounting to King Agrippa a conversation that he had with the risen Lord Jesus, where Jesus explained to Paul how he had been chosen to be a witness for Jesus and a mouthpiece for the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles. But friends, pay careful attention to the language of verse 18. Look at it again. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The result of this miraculous encounter with Jesus was a new man with a new mission. And this was his new mission. It was to, to announce that any person anywhere could find eternal hope in and through the person and work of Jesus. The language used here is the language of conversion. This is what it means to be converted to Christ. A sinner turns from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, receiving forgiveness of sins and being joined to all those who are sanctified in Christ. You see, a saving encounter with Jesus it gives someone a new life and a new mission. And this isn't just true for the Apostle Paul, but it's true for everyone who turns to Christ in faith. In Christ, all who believe possess a, a true and lasting hope. A hope that is rooted and grounded in Christ alone. In fact, listen to what Paul writes to the Colossians. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. These two verses 
in some way, summarize all that we've talked about so far. Delivered, transferred, redeemed, and forgiven. These are all works of the triune God. Salvation is accomplished entirely by God, and it's all of grace. This is how Paul could stand in the midst of an earthly kingdom and in front of an earthly king and could pledge his allegiance and affection to another king as a member of another and far greater kingdom. Gospel hope. Gospel hope transcends circumstances and bolsters believers even in the most difficult and uncertain times. We think not only about Paul in this setting, but we think about what all of us are facing now. I would describe what we're facing now as uncertain, difficult. But you see, in Christ, we possess a a hope that transcends circumstances and it bolsters us. It doesn't shake us. You say, well, I need to be reminded of this right now. Well, let me remind you by offering you Paul's words to the Romans. It's a glorious text of Scripture from Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, or pandemic, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I am sure, I am sure That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, friend, let that fill your heart with hope. Paul's hope was given by God. It was focused entirely on Christ. And finally, our our third point, gospel hope is displayed through obedience. It's displayed through obedience. Again, look at the text with me, verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people 
and to the Gentiles. Brothers and sisters, how do you know? How do you know someone has been rescued from their sin and made new in Jesus? Well, a new heart gives way to a new life. Belief produces behavior. We know that Paul believes in Jesus because he obeys Jesus. He's not simply declaring Christ to be the king, but he is submitting to the rule of Christ as his king. Notice verse 21. What what made certain Jews so angry with Paul was, was not simply that he embraced the gospel personally, but it's that he was now living missionally. He was doing something with this faith. He was declaring the message. He was telling people that they needed to do what he did. Repent and turn to God. Of course, he wasn't doing this to cause trouble per se. He was doing this out of love for Christ and love for people. For Paul... For Paul to have experienced the saving grace of God in Jesus and then to keep that good news to himself, well, this would have been a profoundly selfish and unloving thing to do. So wherever God led Paul to a synagogue, to the home of Someone who opened it up to be hospitable to him. In the presence of King Agrippa, it didn't matter where he was. He was going to do what he believed was was the most loving thing he could possibly do. And that is to declare the message of hope. To talk openly about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And to call people to repentance and faith in Christ. We could say it this way, Paul does what every child of God is commanded to do. He becomes a witness for Jesus by speaking the gospel to those who are without hope. Let me briefly point out now the response of both Festus and Agrippa before we close this morning. First, the response of Festus. Look at verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. Friends, Festus rejects the hope of the gospel and declares that Paul is crazy. This is a very sad scene, isn't it? Festus has been with Paul. He has heard Paul speak extensively. 
He has not only heard the gospel declared, but he has seen the resolute and unwavering hope of Paul in the face of violent opposition. And yet this is his response. The response of Festus is to dismiss the message and denounce the messenger. But in so doing, he is denying himself any true and lasting hope. Look now at the response of Agrippa. In verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. When they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Friends, Agrippa declares that Paul is innocent, but sadly, he as well rejects the hope of the gospel. Paul has boldly and clearly presented the gospel to Agrippa. He has shared his own personal testimony. He has offered Agrippa a riveting account of his his own transformation by the power of Christ. He's told him the story and given him the explanation. How, How on earth did this religious terrorist become a humble servant? Well, the only explanation is an encounter with Christ. And yet Agrippa turns away without believing. Again, friends, this is a tragic account. But let me close with, with two quick thoughts in summary. First, our text this morning, it, it reminds us that no one has or will ever be saved, be rescued from their sin apart from the sovereign intervention and initiative of God. And realizing this or being reminded of this is not only cause for joyful worship, but it is cause for humble service. Understanding the sovereignty of God and salvation does not puff us up, but it brings us low in worship and service before God. This is why when we sing the song, O Great God, we begin by praising God for His overcoming grace, and then we end by singing this. Help me now to live a life that's dependent on Your grace. Keep my heart and guard my soul from the evils that I face. You are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. 
O great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. The only appropriate response to the saving grace of God is to offer him everything. Here is the second and final thought I have for you. Our text this morning reminds us that our job, our job, brothers and sisters, is to boldly, clearly, and lovingly present the gospel to everyone. We ought to seek to appropriately persuade sinners to repent and believe. But friends, that is all we can do. We cannot transform their heart. We cannot make them believe. This is the work of God. And this is the mystery of his sovereignty. Many will, many will hear the good news of Jesus, but they will walk away. And while this should always grieve us, should deeply grieve us, it should never shake the foundations of our faith or cause us to wonder what we might have done differently to close the deal or to question God's love for sinners. No, no, brothers and sisters, let God be God. Passionately preach Christ. Pray like crazy. And then lay your head on the soft pillow of the sovereignty of God. I started this message by referencing a news story that asked people for a three-word message of encouragement and hope. As we close, I want to invite you to do this as well. In light of our text this morning and the songs we've sung, as an individual or as a family, spend some time, spend some time coming up with three-word messages of encouragement and hope. And then I would invite you and I would ask you to consider during this strange and difficult time, consider sharing those brief messages with someone who needs to hear them. It could be a Christian that's in need of encouragement. It could be an unbelieving friend or co-worker or neighbor that, that needs to hear this message. But would you consider doing that? If we gave the Apostle Paul this assignment, here are a few he might offer us. And with these all Close. So imagine that I'm interviewing the Apostle Paul and I ask him, Paul, give us a message of hope in three words. Perhaps he would offer us some of these. Repent and believe. Trust in Jesus. Go and tell. Christ saves sinners. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you that the work of the word by the power of the spirit is not bound to a particular place. So even though we are scattered about as a faith family, we know that this in no way hinders the work of the spirit and the power of the word. Would you use the word of God, O Holy Spirit, to convict us, to comfort us, to change us, to motivate us, to worship and to serve as your witnesses. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. I love sports, especially college and NFL football. I love everything about the game of football, and I especially love going to a game. One of the fascinating things about going to a game is that you get to see parts of it that you don't normally get to see on TV. For instance, rarely does a television broadcast of an NFL game show you the entire introductions of the starting lineups. But of course, you, you always see this if you're actually in the stadium at the game. When a player is introduced and the crowd begins to roar, depending on who the player is, the entrances onto the field vary widely. Some players simply put their head down and they run onto the field while the crowd cheers. While others have a choreographed routine that includes some personal dance number designed both to excite the crowd and to make sure that everyone's attention is on them. Do you know what I've noticed over the years of attending games? The more flamboyantly a player enters, the more flamboyant he is during the game. The more businesslike he enters, the more businesslike he is during the game. In other words, you can tell a lot about a player by the way he enters onto the field. Now, friends, we will find the same principle to be true as we look into God's Word this morning, though what we'll encounter in the text is of far greater importance than any silly football game. On this Palm Sunday, we're going to study Luke's account of Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem as he quickly approaches the time of his crucifixion. And here's what we'll see. You can tell a lot about Jesus by the way he enters into Jerusalem. He enters as a humble king, and then he continues to walk in humility every single step of the way to Golgotha. So my my desire is to put Jesus before you as Luke reveals him. The humble king who brings peace. Friends, I want you to see that while Jesus was not what so many of his own people wanted him to be, he was precisely who they needed. And he was exactly who Scripture prophesied him to be. So I've been praying this week that through our brief study today and then next Sunday, some of you, for the very first time, will see that your greatest need, your greatest need is peace with God and that only Jesus can meet that need. Friends, you and I and everyone who has ever lived, we need, we desperately need the humble King 
who brings peace. Luke points us to the humility of Christ the King in three ways. Notice first how we see the humility of Jesus in His actions. The humility of Jesus in His actions. Look at verse 28 with me. And when He said these things, this is referring to the parable Jesus had just shared, He went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now, to understand what Luke has been doing in the chapters leading up to this point, everything's been building toward the moment when Jesus finally arrives in Jerusalem. But notice that according to verse 41, he's not quite there yet. You see, there's a particular way he must enter the city. So now look at verse 29. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. In these eight verses, prophecy is fulfilled in two ways. The the first is in the securing of a colt for Jesus to ride. This is alluded to in Zechariah chapter 9, which I'll say more about in, in just a minute. The second example is the location where Jesus is heading, the Mount of Olives, according to verse 37. This, this was prophesied in Zechariah chapter 14. Friends, Luke is making it crystal clear that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the chosen one. He has come to save his people from the slavery of sin and the great enemy of death. He is the humble king who brings eternal peace. Now, please don't miss how, according to the trustworthy and prophetic word, Jesus acts in great humility. First, he directs two of his disciples to borrow a colt that has never been sat upon. Luke tells us that when they found such a colt, they politely explained to the owners that Jesus needed their colt. And apparently that very brief explanation was sufficient, so the two disciples bring the colt to Jesus. Now, we need to take a closer look at Zechariah 9, verse 9, if we want to understand Jesus' choice of a young and unused colt and the significance of this action. Here is Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Listen carefully as I read it. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
I love what one commentator writes about this. Zechariah predicted that the true king of Israel would come to Jerusalem on a young, unused colt. When kings came to cities in times of war, they came on mighty war horses. But when kings came on a donkey, it meant they were coming in peace. Brothers and sisters, the actions of Jesus reveal who He is. He is the humble King who brings peace. He is the long-awaited Messiah. But He isn't coming only for Jews. No, He is coming for all people who are objects of God's wrath and have no hope on their own of ever experiencing peace with a holy God. So don't, don't read this and understand this as something that only had implications for the Jews. It has implications, profound and eternal implications for all of us. So with this in mind, I, I want you to see now a second way in which Luke points to Jesus as the humble king who brings peace. Luke now draws attention to the humility of Jesus in his attitude. The humility of Jesus in his attitude. Look with me at verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. As Jesus continues to approach Jerusalem, the crowd that is watching him ride a colt over garments that have been laid on the ground, they, they begin to rejoice and praise God. And why does Luke say they are praising God? For all the mighty works that they had seen. And then Luke tells us exactly what they were saying. Verse 38. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Oh, brothers and sisters, doesn't this adoration from the crowd remind you of the announcement of the angels back in Luke 2? In fact, listen to that text with me. Luke chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. There is one idea that is central to the praise offered both by the crowd as Jesus prepares to enter Jerusalem and by the angels as... Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It's peace. Jesus did not come as a military leader bent on overthrowing the Roman government, but he came as a humble king and a suffering servant. One who willingly laid down his life for the eternal peace of hopeless sinners like you 
and me. You see, friends, the attitude and the posture of Jesus was always one of humility. And this was the case because his mission, listen, his mission was not selfish, but selfless. He did not come for his own advantage or benefit, but for the advantage and benefit of sinners, those who needed someone to act on their behalf, to do something they could not do for themselves. And it was this, secure peace with a holy God. So the crowd was right in their praise. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But even though the crowd was right, look at the response of the Pharisees to the admiration of the crowd. Verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Here's why the Pharisees commanded Jesus to rebuke the crowd. They knew that the crowd was quoting Psalm 118.26, and in so doing, they were confessing Jesus as both the Messiah and the true King of Israel. But we know, even from the way the Pharisees address Jesus here, that they think the crowd is crazy, right? They simply refer to Jesus as teacher. He's clearly not the Messiah. He's not the king. He's just a teacher. So Jesus responds. And he responds not by taking personal offense, or by becoming angry with them. But he calmly and humbly alludes to Habakkuk 2 and verse 11. Rebuking the Pharisees and letting them know that even if the crowd were to cease declaring the truth about him, well, God would miraculously cause the stones to cry out and make known the truth about Jesus. In other words, there's nothing the Pharisees can do to stop the plan that's in motion. Think about this for a moment. Think about what we're, what we're seeing here in the text and consider what Paul so beautifully wrote about Jesus in his letter to the Philippians. About Jesus, he said this, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the humble king who has secured peace for all those who believe in him. And he did this at unfathomable.
unfathomable cost to himself. You see, unless the true king was also a humble servant, there would be no no peace for sinners. Because a sacrifice was necessary. Jesus had to become obedient to death, even death on a cross. And this is precisely where everything is headed in our text. Luke draws our attention to the humility of Jesus in his actions, his attitude, and finally, Luke shows us the humility of Jesus in his affections. Look with me at verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Instead of the peace that the people could have enjoyed by receiving Jesus by faith, they have chosen to reject him. And now now the city whose name means peace, it will be destroyed. And so Jesus weeps. His heart breaks Not because his feelings have been hurt. No, he weeps because he he has come to his own people, offering them what they most desperately need. And they have turned away, believing that someone or something else can save and satisfy them. They have embraced the lie that their greatest need is something other that eternal peace with God. Friends, here is the most frightening part of what Jesus says here. Look look again at verses 43 and 44. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus puts the responsibility for the impending destruction of Jerusalem squarely upon the shoulders of those who have consciously rejected him because you did not know the time of your visitation. In other words, Jesus makes it crystal clear to those who have failed to receive him as the true king of heaven. He says, in choosing to reject me, you have chosen destruction over peace. Friends, this is true for everyone. 
if you reject Jesus as the humble king who brings peace, you have made a foolish choice that has only one possible end. In fact, Paul describes this in Philippians chapter 3. He says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. I would, I would beg each person listening Turn to Christ in repentance and faith. Experience the joy of peace with God through Jesus Christ. Experience it right now and forever. In our text this morning, Luke has set before our eyes the majesty and beauty of Jesus. He is the humble King who brings peace. And and maybe here's the, the best part of the good news. Jesus brings peace exclusively to people who don't deserve it and can't do anything to earn or secure it on their own. It is a gift of grace to be received by faith. So no matter who you are and what you've experienced and how many times you've rejected Him before, in this moment, bow before King Jesus and embrace Him. Turn from your sin and believe in Jesus. He alone can bring peace with God. This is the peace that Paul writes about in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only way. There is no other way to have peace with God. Peace with God only comes through faith in Jesus the humble king. This is why we sang earlier these wonderful words of praise to Jesus. And with this, I'll close. And I would, I would invite you just to think carefully, quietly about these words. In the darkness, we were waiting without hope, without light, Till from heaven you came running, there was mercy in your eyes. To fulfill the law and prophets, to a virgin came the word from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt. To reveal the kingdom coming and to reconcile the lost, to redeem the whole creation, you did not despise the cross. For even in your suffering, you saw to the other side, knowing this was our salvation. Jesus, for our sake, you died. Friends, let's pray. 
Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your obedience. Thank you for humbling yourself. And then becoming obedient. Even unto death. Death on a cross. As sinful human beings, there is no way for us left to ourselves to secure peace with God. But Jesus, you made a way. Through your miraculous birth, through your sinless life, through your substitutionary death, through your glorious resurrection, and then your ascension, your work is finished. And through your work, we can experience forgiveness of sin and eternal peace with God. Thank you, Jesus. It is our hope that every person that every person would know this peace. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would use this message, that you would use your word, that you would use this church, that we would be messengers of peace found in and through Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.
You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Well, 2020 is an election year. But of course, you know this because you've already been inundated with political ads. They're everywhere. In fact, even during this pandemic we're all facing, we're hearing almost every day about all the ways in which the coronavirus may or may not affect the upcoming election. One of the challenges everyone faces as they navigate the important decision of, of choosing who to vote for is deciding who they can actually trust. You hear the policies and promises of those vying for your vote, and and you have to discern whether or not you believe they will do what they've said they will do. In fact, often you'll, you'll hear one candidate talk about another's promises and then compare it to his record. What he's trying to do at this point is is show and illustrate how words and actions don't match up. There are lots of promises, but there's no fulfillment. You see, friends, it matters what someone says, but, but even more, it matters if they've backed up their words with actions. If they have, you have good reason to trust that person, right? Right? As we think this morning about the resurrection of Jesus, I want you to see that Jesus is completely trustworthy. There is absolutely no disconnect between his words and his actions. What he has promised, he has fulfilled. And because of this, he is worthy. He is worthy of your unqualified confidence and trust. In fact, Tim Keller expresses this same idea when he writes, quote, If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead just as he said he would, unquote. So brothers and sisters, I want to walk through the final chapter of Luke's gospel, and I want you to see the connection between the words and the works of Jesus. And I want you to see how God graciously meets people in their doubt and in their fear, and he gives them the grace to believe. Luke 24 unfolds for us in three different scenes, and we're going to ever so briefly walk through each of them. Scene number one is the empty tomb. Look with me at verse one and follow along as I read from God's word. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. 
Well, they were perplexed about this. Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. The text tells us that a group of women arrive at the tomb on the first day of the week, and they're not visiting to make sure Jesus is there. No, they brought spices precisely because they had no question that he would be there. He, he was dead, and he was buried. In their doubt and confusion, when they find the empty tomb, two men in dazzling apparel appear before them and begin to speak. And I want you to notice again what they say. Look back at verse 5. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. Friends, isn't it interesting that the heavenly messengers don't simply point to the physical proof of Jesus' resurrection? Now, they do this by asking a pretty pointed question in verse 5. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Most people don't go to graveyards looking for people who are alive. So the messengers certainly are pointing the women to the physical proof that Jesus is alive. He's no longer in the tomb. But, but notice, they do something more. I, I want you to see two connected phrases. The, the first in verse 6. Remember how he told you. And the second in verse 8. And they remembered his words. Friends, this is not only the problem we all face, but it's the remedy we all need. Here's, here's what I mean. We all tend to forget what God has said in the past. We forget the promises he has already made, which then causes us to look past the evidence of his work in the present. We don't connect the dots. We don't connect the dots because when we forget the word of God, we often fail to see the work of God as well. But what do we see in our text? In his kindness, 
what does God do for us? Well, it's what he did for the women. He reminds us of his word, and then he gives us eyes of faith to see his works. We remember his word, and we see his work. He said he would rise on the third day, and now the tomb is empty. So the women run back to tell all those gathered together. Of course, sometimes our response is more like the men in the story. While the women were quick to remember, the men hear the report of the women and decide it, it sounds like a fairy tale. They have forgotten the word of God and so they are oblivious to the work of God and they continue to be dominated by doubt. Now, friends, I want you to keep this first scene in mind as we move to the second. Scene number two, the Emmaus Road. Scene number two, the Emmaus Road. Look with me at verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, 
Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. On the same day that the empty tomb was discovered, two disciples were traveling the road to a place called Emmaus. While traveling, they were joined by an unexpected visitor, someone they didn't recognize. It was Jesus, the very one they were discussing. As Jesus interacts with these men, he offers them what what must have been the greatest Bible lesson anyone has ever heard. Jesus himself walked these men through the Old Testament scriptures and revealed to them how everything points to him. It's not until they've stopped traveling and started eating together that they finally recognize who they were walking with. But then Jesus is gone. Now, friends, much like scene one, these men had forgotten the word of God. So they were failing to see the incredible work of God. The resurrected Christ was walking with them. So now, what do we find in the text? Once again, in the kindness of God, they receive from Jesus a divine reminder. Look back at verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. These two men knew a lot about Jesus. And they were obviously acquainted with the scriptures. But they needed eyes to see what was most important. They needed to be reminded that Jesus didn't come to fulfill their expectations, but he came to do his Father's will. It would only be when these men had eyes to see the Word of God that they would also see the work of God. And in his kindness, this is exactly what God does. Notice the connection between verse 25 and verse 31. Only the kindness and mercy of God can move someone from, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken, to this. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Once they see Jesus in the word, they recognize Jesus in their midst. Now, in conclusion, friends, look with me at the third and final scene. Scene number three, the surprise meeting. Let me draw your attention to verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, 
peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Before Jesus says a final goodbye, he graciously appears before the eleven and those gathered with them. They have now heard the report of the women and the disciples from the Emmaus Road and yet they doubt. So first Jesus makes an announcement, then he points to the signs of his physical suffering, his pierced hands and feet. He even invites the disciples to touch him. And then just to make sure they are either sufficiently convinced it's him or sufficiently freaked out, he asks for something to eat. course all of this reminds us and it proved to them that Jesus experienced a bodily resurrection friends notice what Jesus says in verse 44 these are my words and then in verse 46 thus it is written Jesus himself is reminding his gathered disciples of what they have already heard. He is doing, he's doing what we've already seen. He's reminding them of his words so they will more clearly see his work. You see, the resurrection shouldn't have been a surprise to the women who visited the tomb. Or the two men who walked with Jesus. And it certainly shouldn't have been a surprise to the eleven. Jesus was the promised Messiah and the victorious King. His miraculous birth, his sinless life, his substitutionary death, and his glorious resurrection from the dead. These were all prophesied beforehand. So just like we've already witnessed in scenes one and two, when the disciples forgot the word of God, they failed to see the work of God. The the problem with the doubting disciples was not a lack of proof. It was unbelief. 
their failure to believe that Christ had been raised from the dead was the fruit of unbelief. Their actions revealed their lack of confidence in the promises of God. They doubted that Jesus would, in fact, do exactly what he told them he would do. Friends, what I want you to be convinced of this morning is that you can trust Jesus. You can trust Jesus and you can trust Him with your life. Faith in Christ is not blind faith, but it is rooted firmly in the Word of God and the work of Christ. God made a promise and it was fulfilled in Jesus. In fact, listen again to the words of Jesus to His disciples back in verse 44. Then He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. The Word of God points us to the work of Christ, the one who suffered as a substitute for sinners, bearing the wrath of God so that sinners like you and me could receive mercy and grace and forgiveness. We must only repent and believe. Friends, this is the gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Friends, believe. Believe the testimony of Scripture and trust the risen Christ today. He will not fail you unlike those politicians that I alluded to at the beginning of this talk, there is no discrepancy at all between the Word of God and the work of Christ. Jesus is who Scripture says He is, and He did what Scripture said he would do. In fact, this is why we we sing so often these words. And the name of the song, most appropriately, is My Living Hope. This is what we sing. Then came the morning that, what? Sealed the promise. So word and work came together in glorious triumph. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to breathe. 
out of the silence, the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me. Jesus, yours, is the victory. Friends, turn to Jesus today. You can trust him. Believe in his words. See his works. And put your faith in him. The crucified and risen Christ according to the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, we offer thanks to you this morning for Jesus Christ, our living hope, the one who suffered in our place, who died on a cross, who was buried in a tomb, only to be raised from the dead to appear before his disciples and then to ascend to heaven where he was seated. And now, oh God, as we think about the resurrection of Christ, we long for his return. Even so come, Lord Jesus. It's in the name of Christ, our crucified and risen Lord and Savior, we pray all of these things. Amen.